1: The will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello, and welcome back to Climactic. I'm your host, Mark Spencer. This week, we have a live event recording for you from Psychology for a Safe Climate. That's the group that former guest Beth Hill is a member of, and this event was actually moderated by Beth. For more about Psychology for a Safe Climate and Beth's work, check out our interview with Beth, link in the show notes. But this event is all about bushfire and the psychological impact fire can have on people and just when the right time is and how to bring up climate change and introduce it to discussion in the aftermath of a bushfire. You'll hear from a bushfire survivor and psychologist who himself struggled to grapple with when and how to introduce the conversation of climate change into the aftermath of the fire. It's a great talk and a great event, and I thank Psychology for Safe Climate so much for letting me bring this to you. They're an amazing group, and I highly recommend you check out their work. But let's get right into it.
0: Before we start, I want to acknowledge that we meet on the land of the Wurundjeri people and that this land was never ceded. We pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge the pivotal role of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders in our community, the, the important role they play. Now, my pleasure to invite you to listen to Charles Lefebvre on my right and Beth here who are our speakers on the subject of the psychological impact of experiencing bushfires in an era of climate change. Charles is our Vice President and is a psychiatrist and psychotherapist working in Melbourne. He has an interest in psychological aspects of our relationship to nature and climate change. He has worked with PSC for a number of years and was involved with a Christmas Day 2015 bushfire in Wye River. And Beth completed her PhD in Anthropology at the University of Sydney in 2017. Beth's research looks at how people in Australia make sense of and are being impacted by climate change in their
2: daily lives. Uh, So we thought we'd... (laughs) Thank you. We thought we'd just spend the first little while just talking about our experiences with bushfire. So I'm just going to start by speaking a bit about my research and then Charles is going to speak about his experience and I might even ask him some questions. I completed my PhD last year and I was researching a community in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales who had gone through a catastrophic bushfire in 2013. And it was a a fire at the time that was very much connected with climate change in the media and a lot of the discourse that was happening about why the fire had happened and, you know, why it had burnt so quickly. And there was about 200 homes that burnt down. Most damage from a bushfire in the Blue Mountains in about 50 years. It was a bit of a coincidence, really, for me that I ended up studying bushfire. I'd, I'd started my PhD at this point... And I was really curious about this notion of how was climate change materialising for people in their daily lives? What was an experience of climate change? And I was sort of looking around Australia for a field site where I could go and and do my field work as an anthropologist. I'm a bit of a non-traditional anthropologist. I have an interest in kind of white suburban middle class people and their relationships with nature. So I was looking for, at the time, I sort of thought maybe a coastal town somewhere struggling with sea level rise. And I was sitting in my study um, on the 17th of October and the light changed and I thought, "God, what's going on out there? And I went out onto the balcony and I was house-sitting for my father and um, he lives right on the harbour of Sydney and this huge plume of smoke was just sort of rolling in over the harbour. It was like nothing I'd ever experienced before. And it did have this very sort of stark apocalyptic feel about it. It was quite shocking. And of course I'd been sitting in inside all day reading about climate change. So mm-hmm. for me there was sort of that double moment. Thought well I suppose I you know I suppose I could I could do my research in the Blue Mountains. I could go and, and speak to people up there. I had friends who were working up there and What got me interested in, in once I started my research actually in the Blue Mountains, was, you know, there was this notion in anthropology that climate change was affecting how people discussed environmental disaster. So it was changing the framework of how people spoke about local disaster. But what I really began to notice in my research was that local disaster was changing the way people spoke about climate change. So it was actually moving in the other direction as well and that's what I started getting really interested in. How is the experience of this fire changing how people do and don't feel comfortable actually addressing or approaching or talking about climate change with each other? There was a lot of focus in the media at the time and I guess still very much this is where they'd like to go is on this idea of climate change denial and um, that was definitely present in, in the community that I was researching But I suppose rather than looking at denial as a kind of block to people actually engaging with climate change or experiencing climate change or making sense of climate change, I started to sort of track in the community the sort of fissure lines of dispute and confusion and ambiguity about what this bushfire meant. That sort of ambiguity and dispute, I sort of started seeing that that almost was the central part of how people were (coughs) experiencing climate change. And so rather than waiting for people to kind of get beyond that and suddenly have this real conversation, I, I really, really, really sort of began to see that the real conversation, the way people were saying, you know, that fire just wasn't normal. There was something really weird about that fire. I sort of began to notice that that conversation was a way for people to start grappling with, with this larger question of what, what could be expected in the future. And what could be done?
3: Thank you, Beth. It's a shame you couldn't have waited a couple of years and come down to Y River (laughs) to do your research. (laughs) But, um, yeah, look, it's a bit difficult for me today because I'm here sort of in some ways as two people. I'm here as uh, Dr Charles, but I'm also here as Charles and... uh, that's quite a lot more uncomfortable because uh, I went through a difficult experience really to do with the the bushfires. I think I'd really got very much more involved in climate change in 2009 around the time of the Black Saturday bushfire because that was such a a horrific bushfire but it was also a horrific time I think in Melbourne because it really felt to me as though the natural environment was dying and it really felt like, like I could feel something was different. December 2015, my interest and ideas suddenly collided with frightening reality. I'll just tell you a bit about my experience. Most of it I'll, I will read. I don't know how many of you know Y River, probably most of, you, most of you do. It's a small coastal town nested in the forest just beyond Lawn on the Great Ocean Road. Myself and my family started staying there in the early 90s, fell in love with the place and bought a small holiday property in the late 90s. It was an important place for all the family and surrounded by nature. Gum trees, koalas, parrots, the ocean, whales, albatrosses. In mid-December 2015, in uh, what people call these days unseasonably hot weather, lightning ignited a fire in the Otway Ranges. The fire continued and on Christmas day, A hot northerly wind propelled the fire to Wye River and Separation Creek in close to Lawn. We were in Melbourne watching events unfold on TV, hoping against hope that we might dodge the bullet. gradually became very apparent that that wasn't going to be the case and that fire had entered both townships and uh, houses had been destroyed. The TV images were very shocking. On Boxing Day morning, our fears were confirmed in a brutal text message. Your house is gone. Sorry. We knew the guy who sent it. He was one of the firefighters who we knew in Y River, but he was obviously (laughs) been working all night. Poor guy. The fire destroyed 115 properties, but no lives were lost, fortunately. Of properties lost, the vast majority were of holiday homes like ours. We were in a state of shock and grief at the loss of our much-loved house, In the meantime, people weren't allowed back into the affected area other than to see their property. There were issues of hazardous trees, asbestos, and water polluted by fire retardant. There was much support needed and provided in those early days. On our return to Wye, the blackened landscape on the way was hard to recognise. Fire had burned all the way down to the Ocean Road, so by the time we'd got there, some trees had already been removed and there was much temporary fencing. Our property was rubble, apart from some twisted metal and, interestingly, our statue of Venus, the goddess of love, survived. (laughs) It was about all. It was a surreal day as well, a beautiful, warm, blue-sky day. Our next visit felt more real, but frightening and upsetting. We had to wear protective gear. We had a closer look at our house. Everything destroyed, bits of things pieces of asbestos. The thing really from the whole episode that I miss most was our nature diary, which was written in by us and by visitors. And really, I guess it represented all the shared experience that we had of being there and all the the sharing of being in the natural environment. There were a number of community meetings in Wye and Melbourne with various representatives from different organisations, the shire, local shire, Emergency Management Victoria... The government and Grocon, who were in charge of the works, there was much anger and upset in the meetings about insurance, etc. The clean-up occurred, removing all the debris, and then came other issues. Two major issues, which caused much frustration and grief, were tree removal and bow ratings. I don't know if you know about the bow system, but it's called bushfire attack level. I think it was introduced after the. Black Saturday fires and basically grades property in terms of their bushfire level. Essentially what it means is the level that you have to build to in in areas to be compliant. So there'd been very poor communication on both those issues and much anger and grief. An arborist had suggested removing many trees and this started. And I wrote a, a letter, and I'll just read part of it because it sort of shows the sort of a bit about my state, and also the combination of Charles and Doctor Charles, that were sort of trying to work together, but I don't think they—I think they failed rather badly. But uh, so I wrote. I've been very distressed. This was part of the letter. I've been very distressed by the situation and have found it quite traumatic. As a psychiatrist, I know that any tree felling at this time is inevit- inevitably causes further grief and trauma. However, the sense of powerlessness, hopelessness, and helplessness, as occurred with the fire and lack of information engendered by the process itself, just adds further trauma. For most of us with properties in Y, the natural environment is very important to us. So to lose any more trees than absolutely necessary in the aftermath of the fire adds to the loss and grief. Unnecessary tree removal not only has unwanted physical effects, for example erosion, effect on ecology, but also major psychological and social effects. I'm very concerned about the mental health of the community at this point. Unfortunately, there were rather mixed results from this initiative to to the minister. Another arborist got involved and suggested removing more trees. It was then left to individuals, which was a positive thing, whether they would actually consent to that occurring or not. There'd also been little communication about these bowel ratings until they were disclosed. Many houses were in the most extreme category, which was called Bal FZ. FZ means flame zone, which is a very sort of traumatic word itself. There was much anger about the apparent arbitrariness of this. What it meant was that the higher the rating, the more expensive materials were needed to be used, plus or minus also having to have a bushfire shelter. And also one couldn't appeal the uh, rating once given. Visiting Y became a trauma rather than a relief. Though it was good to be with others, and being there allowed more feelings of grief. Bob Gordon, who some of you may know or have come across, a psychologist, came to a number of meetings. He was really very helpful, sort of normalising people's feelings, and particularly talking about the need to allow time. And uh, I think that was probably a very important thing to just the whole realisation that one's whole brain and mental functioning was going to be affected, actually, for some considerable time after the fire, which, in retrospect, I can recognise within myself. A community resilience committee was formed and various subcommittees. I was on the Community Connection and Wellbeing Committee and I did liaise, to an extent, with Rob. People really were suffering, particularly those, obviously, who were permanent residents. And a psychologist saw a number of people supervised by Rob people were deciding whether to rebuild. Many decided early on to rebuild. We'd decided to, but moved pretty slowly. It was also very difficult because later in the year there were very heavy rains and landslides, and there was a major landslide in Wye, which meant that some of our land might have actually completely disappeared down the hill. Fortunately, that didn't eventuate. 2017 was not as obviously traumatic although there was less support as Grocon had moved out and community meetings had stopped. It was still difficult. The landscape was slowly recovering, but some trees who'd lost contact with their community of trees were not recovering, and people likewise. We engaged an architect last year, and we've just got our building permit, so we're about to start building in the next few weeks, which is exciting, but also a bit scary, particularly in terms of the potential long-term consequences.
2: So I'm so um, struck by how many similarities there are in hearing you speak about your experience and, and in what I encountered in the Blue Mountains as well. And I'm sort of curious to ask you in your dual roles here as as Charles, you know, bushfire survivor and as, you know, Dr Charles. I guess particularly the thing that I was struck by is the way you spoke about the recovery process itself and the sort of the powerlessness and the trauma and uncertainty that sort of began with the fire and the way that it was then protracted and almost um, intensified through the recovery process because of the removal of the trees and because in particular of the bowel rating process. So I know when I interviewed a lot of people, this was the thing they would always end up talking to me about for the longest time, all of the different um, adjustments they had to make to their building plans for their, for their house to be up to the flame zone standard. And they just complete bewilderment at why their next-door neighbours had a completely different rating to them and thus it was costing them $50,000 less to build. And almost this sense of... What is it that's being communicated here about how much the risk has actually changed that we didn't understand beforehand?
3: Yeah, look, I think we knew from the beginning that, yeah, the risk was obviously pretty high. I mean, I think we both knew intellectually in a way Mm. that climate change was an important factor, although in another way, it was difficult to actually be living with that in a sense because it wasn't... Uh, I mean, my account, as rather reflecting what you were saying, uh, there was very little mention of climate change within the community and bizarrely enough, when I think about it myself, I didn't actually talk about it very much in public meetings or whatever. But I think the bell ratings, yeah, I mean, I think part of it, in retrospect, although there was a lot of complaint about it, I, I think part of it was a was a denial of accepting the reality that actually it really is a very dangerous environment and is going to become a more dangerous environment. And uh, somebody in, uh, where we live in Melbourne, somebody in the street, a friend of theirs had died in the Black Saturday fires and she had said, you know, there were just some places which now just shouldn't be built in. Mm. So it's really, I think now we've, you know, so I think the Bell discussion sort of underneath it there was certainly an element of climate change which probably didn't get talked about Mm. Uh, and I think well I think the whole thing as well with the trees as well even though I got very you know as you could see from my letter I was very stirred up about it when I think about it now part of it relates obviously to the fire itself and to the whole situation really of feeling feeling powerless and helpless Mm. so I think a lot of people's feelings partly got projected onto those issues, which is what what, Rob Gordon said at the time, and I didn't fully believe him then. Mm -hmm. But he was right, but on the other hand, he also wasn't because there were, unfortunately, the whole systematic approach to the bushfire was not very well done in terms of communication.
2: It's interesting what you mention about the trees. Um, In the Blue Mountains, they brought in this new law called the 1050 law, And it was replicating a law that came in in Victoria after the Black Saturday fires as well that basically gave people an entitlement to cut down any trees within 10 metres of their house, some number of trees within 50 metres of their house. It sort of basically gave people land clearing rights that they hadn't previously had. They would have usually had to go through a long application process with the council to cut down trees on their own property. And actually in Winmalee, it sort of was the opposite. Like a lot of people cut down a lot of trees When I had one RFS guy tell me, oh, people were treating it more like the 3300 rule, you know, Mm. right after the fire in particular. Mm -hmm. Um, Not so much. About a a year and a half after the fire, things seemed to settle and it was quite an interesting process, though, the projection of the danger being in the trees that Mm. that happened in the community Mm. that I was studying. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, and sort of trying to take back control and and reinstigate that Mm. that line, you know, this is our home and then beyond that line is the bush and how do we clear a space and Mm. keep ourselves safe, keeping that at bay.
3: I think in Wye River it was a bit different because a lot of trees were destroyed and were Mm. removed and in Wye a lot of people were, well, for anyone who's been to Wye River, they're... Whole little township is fairly invisible, or was fairly invisible from the ocean road because mm. it nestled into the trees, and mm. that's the mm. been the beauty of it. So I think people would be very were very reluctant. Mm. So trees were a very significant thing.
2: Mm. The other thing you mentioned that I'd love to delve into a bit more because it was something that continues to animate a question for me, which is: should we be talking about climate change after these kinds of events? And what would it mean to be talking about climate change? Mm. So I'd love to ask somebody who's you know been in it. <laughs> I mean, I'd I know you don't have the answer, but yeah, I'd love no, to just I don't hear have more the about. I
3: don't have the answer. You know your all.
2: personal reflections on, on yeah. that question for yourself.
3: Yeah. Well, look, it's. I mean, this talk has really made me actually think about it a lot more. It was something I didn't really think about that much at the time. In a way, it wasn't talked about. The authorities didn't. Um, didn't talk about it at the time. Mm. I mean, I think it's of particular practical significance when it comes to rebuilding. Mm. But I also think, personally, I don't actually see why there isn't a reason to actually mention it right from the outset. If there is some footprint there, particularly in a public meeting, because people are probably not really going to take it in then, because, Mm. you know, I think George Marshall talks about the hierarchy of anxiety. I mean, Mm. people are just going to be far and away more anxious about other things than about climate change. But Mm -hmm. as time goes on, they're probably going to be able to take it in more and think about it. Mm. But it's a difficult thing because I think, you know, I think my own brain was much more working much more primitively than I would have liked to have thought for (laughs) quite a while. And uh, so I ended up, I went to a meeting... beginning of this year about the uh, action plan for the great ocean road Mm. and uh, there was a meeting in Wye river about that and i brought up climate change there and could be talked about in that setting but that was different Mm. and i was saying you know that the bushfire had obviously the imprint of climate change on it but Mm -hmm. during the fire itself it was difficult i think to to talk about and I suppose also because I was there you know I wasn't there as Dr Charles I was Charles and I was really uh, I was very distressed in the whole situation yeah and it wasn't even though intellectually I was involved with it and I was working with PSC at the time personally it was you know difficult to really engage with it so I can very much understand the difficulty
2: I can too you know like I went up to do research you know, in my own mind, ostensibly on climate change. Mm. And then, of course, when you land in the local reality, you have to respect what is at the forefront for Mm. the people that you're working with Mm. um, and asking questions of. And and that balance between both holding climate change as a part of this story, because it was what I was interested in, but at the same time allowing people to tell their own story Mm. the way that made sense to them Mm. was a really, really interesting tension Mm. in my research. And I had... I actually became quite good friends with one woman who, who lost her home and um, she took me down to her property just before they started rebuilding and it was this really windy day, really blue sky and just this vast feeling of kind of emptiness and just the, the quality of, like, obliteration that was there, even for me standing with her in that moment, thinking about saying anything to do with climate change just felt completely mm. ridiculous. Mm. Like it was just like... You know you're sort of in the visceral experience of of the loss and the destruction it just yeah even even though that was kind of in the mix for Mm. me as a researcher Mm. and it really struck me then oh this is what this is what the recovery workers are talking Mm. about (laughs) Mm. Mm. you know like when you're standing there with someone um I think there is a fear of appearing insensitive you know the issue because it's so associated with politics and it's considered to be politically controversial, you're sort of afraid of maybe Mm. politicising someone's very raw, real experience. Mm -hmm.
3: So Can I just ask you, what did you... I mean, you asked me the question about that, but I'm just wondering what your thoughts were after Mm. doing your research in terms of how much it could be talked about. I mean, I guess you were in a sort of fortunate position that you could talk to individual people and gradually mm. build up a relationship where they could potentially then talk about it. Yeah. But how much it could be talked about to the community or mm. quite how you would actually, actually do it if you were managing the situation. <laughs> what do you think?
2: Um, well, I know that for me, um, I, I was living there for six months before I sat down and formally interviewed anyone. And I took quite a lot of time to sort of, yeah, to really try and get to know people and understand what was happening for them. And when I started conducting my interviews, yeah, there were quite a few people who I'd get to the sort of middle section that was specifically about climate change and people would often be a bit like, oh, this is unexpected. (laughs) But what would often evolve through a very sort of frank and open conversation, I mean, interviewing someone for research is quite a unique experience, particularly an open-ended, qualitative interview where you're just letting them share. Often what would unfold would be sort of a process of the person coming to terms with what they did think and feel about it kind of in real time because it was maybe the first time someone had actually directly asked them. Uh And that was a fascinating process to observe, the sort of, back and forth sort of touching into the reality of it of climate change and then and then pulling back again and then sort of circling back around to it and then pulling back again and there was this line that one guy said to me that I thought really captured it quite beautifully I asked him something about climate change and we'd been talking about it for a while and then he looked at me and he said well it's a little bit real isn't it (laughs) and uh I thought, yeah, that's that's how it is for people. It's a little bit real. Nobody's Nobody I spoke to was was denying that it was happening, but no, nor did anyone really want to say it's really, really real and it's big and real. It was, you know, it needed to be held at a distance in some way. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like I'm much further along being able to answer that question. I think that's what, in some ways the question that kept, you know, even at the end of my thesis I was sort of, thinking I don't have an answer for this mm. question. I think mm. it's something that requires more investigation and mm. more research. No, it's um, an
3: interesting thing for us to think about. And, yeah. I was thinking we might perhaps contact Bob Gordon and see yeah, what he thought see about what it, as Indeed, well.
2: yeah, mm. he would have some fascinating thoughts, I
3: think.
2: Mm. But certainly the common sense view at the time for most of the recovery workers I spoke to was it's too traumatic, it's, more, it's too disempowering. It's a, it's a hot topic. We don't want to go there. It's just we don't want to complicate things. And they're really trying to prioritise as much as possible staying in connection with whoever they're mm. helping, right? So they're trying mm. to avoid anything that might potentially disrupt that mm. trust and connection. And I had a lot of respect for that perspective and they were living it. They were out there doing the work. So I don't mm. feel in any way that I'm in a position to question that experience. Mm. But I suppose I want to be in the mix continuing to hold the question and it was connected with climate change. So what does it mean to exclude that mm. from the story? And, yeah.
0: Mm.
3: <laughs> yeah, well, it's an interesting question. I mean, why ever could... You see, there were two populations as well. Right. There was the larger population of people who'd lost holiday houses and then there was a smaller population of people who lost lost their, their sole residence. Mm. And they obviously were, you know, much more impacted and some mm. of them incredibly distressed by the whole situation and And really neat and they still you've connected with that.
4: um i I, i've been through a bushfire lost everything in Mm. one of my calls i used to chair the opway the southern way land committee work Uh we the opway fires are yet to come you've just got a taste it's it's on its way Mm -hmm. and every year we used to warn about this because th- th- this is not climate change. They're just overdue. Mm. Yeah, it was 1930s in the last one. Mm. Mm. And what the only aspect of climate change that impacts on the old waves is that the only thing that saved the old roads is the wet gullies. Mm-hmm. And the worst possible thing you can do is burn off because it destroys the wet gu- gullies mm. mm-hmm. and climate change will drive those gullies mm. out. I mean, there's been so much fire modelling of the Othwares that we know exactly what happens with that hot modelling mm-hmm. and how the flank becomes the front. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this, Wye River was a classic example mm-hmm. of that. Mm-hmm. But I've been to so many talks of that modelling, and there it was happening. Mm-hmm. But the big fire is yet to come. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it might be this year. Mm-hmm. It might be next year, but mm-hmm. it's coming. Mm -hmm. yeah
2: thank you so much there's actually two points you've made that i think lead really well into part of what we wanted to talk about sort of to end this conversation the first aspect is how we think about our relationship Mm -hmm. with nature with this fire ecology you know and in the blue mountains it's the same everyone was expecting that fire and actually it's a, a term that i coined in my research is what i was calling ambivalent expectation which was they were both expecting and not expecting it So it meant that every time a fire happened, everyone could say, oh, we knew it was coming, but it would also have this quality of taking most people by surprise at the same time. And this was one of the difficult things, I think, in in trying to build a resilient culture there that acknowledged that reality. For some people, the idea that their home might burn down was sort of quite casually joked about in a way. You know, that was how people managed that anxiety and a lot of them will kind of joke with me like you probably can't understand it because you've never lived up here like you don't and there was it was like a unique culture that was foreign to me in this strange way Um, how people uh, choose and learn how to live with that level of risk and the other aspect that you've touched on that that really strikes me as key in this discussion is this this label of victim How do you engage with with that vulnerability in a way that doesn't create further shame, but at the same time acknowledges it, that kind of works with it? Mm. I don't know. What's your sense of that?
3: Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I think I agree with you. I I think the word victim is, yeah, is not a a great word in that sense. I mean, people have been trying to find what the right language is to, to deal with the situation and
2: because I know also a lot of the people I spoke to, so the pe- people would often choose bushfire survivor. Mm,
3: survivor. Certainly. But then also
2: people would take issue with that because they'd say, well, you know, I didn't survive it. My whole house burnt down. Like, what are they talking about? I don't mm. feel like a survivor. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so it is this quite fraught place. And I think particularly something that I was interested in in my research is this way that we, that we do hold vulnerability, I think broadly in Australian culture, as something that, that is exclusively weak or, or a problem. Um, I, I sort of have been getting curious about how we could begin to think about vulnerability as a source of strength, which might sound a little, it's a bit paradoxical. I suppose one of the things I encountered a lot with the people who were undergoing this was the depth of connection that they'd built as a community coming out of of this big experience mm. Mm. that was founded on their vulnerability, mm. like it was founded on this shared experience of loss. Mm. And I really saw that within that was a source of their strength. Mm. Yeah, that they hadn't necessarily felt that before as mm. a community.
3: What well, Beth's getting at is very important, this whole issue of vulnerability, because we're talking about it both in terms of our vulnerability and sharing it with other people, but also our whole relationship with the natural environment in a sense and I know it's something that Beth talks about quite a lot and I've also spoken about that whole question of the connection with nature and a sort of if you like respect versus the whole side of the desire to control nature which I think is a very big issue and (laughs) as well we could talk about it all night really but it's it seemed, it's so connected to climate change as well, of course. So from that source, I think, comes an awful lot of, well, denial, if you like. But also, if we can accept that connection more as a society or philosophically, then that, I think, well, I think it's vital, really, to, to have a shift of that paradigm to combat climate change, to be honest.
1: And thank you for joining us for this talk from Psychology for a Safe Climate. We'd like to thank Beth Hill and the whole group for letting us use this recording. If you know of any groups who hold similar events and would like to have them recorded for a climactic episode, please just let us know at hello@climactic.fm. At Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. I'd Like to thank editor Rich Bowden, producer Hazel Fidicaro Composer Greg Rossi, Designer Abigail Hawkins, Correspondents Maxine Baisley and Georgia Sheil, and Senior Advisor Gretchen Miller.
2: The Climactic Collective